Hello, visionaries, ladies and gentlemen. I want to tell you that a Vision for You Convention 2017, The Power of the Big Book, is only six short months away. Yes, in six months, this unconventional convention will bring to life in Technicolor a message of hope and possibility. It will be vibrant, electric, and filled with a message of depth and weight. Hope of a life brand new. How is this possible? Because of the power of the big book. Do not miss out on this opportunity. Don't let anyone you know miss out on this opportunity. Our mission at A Vision for You is to carry this message of recovery to all who seek it and to introduce this promise to those that may not know that there is a promise of recovery. Please join us. Spread this good news far and as wide as you can. Invite a friend or the still-suffering fellow at your local meeting. Together, we can help change lives. You are formally invited to a Vision for You Convention 2017, The Power of the Big Book, held at the Liberty International Airport Marriott, Northern New Jersey, on September 15th, 16th, and 17th, 2017. For more information and to register today, go to our website at www.avisionforyou.info. Remember to check out the Community Bulletin Board on our website also. Here you can post requests for room and transportation needs. There is a link on the home page. Click on that link and you'll be transported to that website page. Now with no further delay, our Sunday Special Edition. Hello and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, March 5th. 2017. The share ID for Friday, March 3rd is 7 a.m. Eastern Time Meetings, 9681. That's 9681. And the 10 a.m. Eastern Meeting, 9682. Today, A Vision for You presents Understanding Powerlessness and Unmanageability. Step one states, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. The foundation of this spiritual process of the 12 steps is having a personal experience of powerlessness. The first part of our addiction is that we are powerless over food. We get uncontrollable physical cravings which overpower us when we eat certain foods. Our bodies are inherently flawed, biochemically different. We are powerless. The second part is that we can't manage our lives in relation to our powerlessness over food. We get mental obsessions that overpower all other thoughts and send us back to those foods that we know will cause us the uncontrollable cravings. Our minds are inherently flawed. We are mentally different from others. We are powerless. Powerless. Perhaps we need to review what that means. Incapable, weak, feeble, incapacitated, helpless, immobilized, without strength, debilitated, disabled, infirm. Based on our own actual experience, we find ourselves in a deep, of personal powerlessness and unmanageability. 
We must experience our powerlessness so that it becomes a launching pad of desperation to seek and find power. Joining us today to speak on the topic of powerlessness and unmanageability are four recovered compulsive overeaters. Our panelists this morning include Esther C. from Canada, Penny E. from New Jersey, Deb W. from Oklahoma, and Penny C. from Massachusetts. Without further ado, let's get started with our first panelist, Esther C. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Esther C., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Canada, recovered today by God's grace, kindness, and mercy. Now, I've been a compulsive overeater for my entire life since I was a very, very small child. I don't remember a time in my life where I wasn't running towards the food or running away from the food. The how, the where, the what of food and eating dominated my thoughts, all my waking thoughts. Constantly I was thinking about food, whether I was going to get it, how I was going to get it, how I was going to stop eating it, you know, etc. In the spring of 2007, about 10 years ago, I, ga- I came to the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous for my final stay here. I had dabbled in OA um, in the early 90s, but I guess I wasn't good and ready then. So when I finally came about 10 years ago, at some point I met somebody that the big book describes, someone in whom the problem had been solved, and she brought the pages of the big book to life for me, and I'm grateful today to be recovered from the obsession to eat compulsively. <clears throat> so why the big book? Um, why was I not able to recover before I cracked open the big book? Well, the big book was written to show us precisely how to recover. That's the words of the big book. To show us precisely how to recover is why the big book was written. The big book teaches me what my problem is, what the solution to my problem is, and then what actions I need to take to implement the solution, and then how am I going to live in the solution from here onwards. Um, Today I want to tell you a little bit about my experiences with step one, powerlessness. Um, from From the big book point of view, the goal of step one is to identify our problem. If I don't have a problem with powerlessness with food, I don't need to be here with you guys today. Um, There are a couple chapters that teach us about our problem, and the first of these chapters is the doctor's opinion. And in that chapter, craving. Um, which which to me means, what is this phenomenon of craving that gets triggered or set off by my binge foods? It means that I can't predict or control the outcome of that first bite. So if I pick up a binge food, um, I don't know if that'll be, if I'm going to eat one or one bag or for one hour or for one day or for one week. It's similar to um, maybe some of you have in the cities where you live bad neighborhoods or there's certain countries which are dangerous places. It's like a dangerous place. I stay out of dangerous places because I cannot I cannot predict um, whether or not I'm going to get out of there alive. So I just completely stay away. And that's what it means to me to be powerless over certain foods. That says I cannot control what will happen once I pick them up. I simply don't eat them at all in any form or any way at all. So that's what this means. I can't eat them ever in, in, in any form at all because once I ingest them, I experience that phenomenon of craving. 
and that's it. Then I'm off to the races, and I don't know if, if I'll ever come back or when I'll ever come, when or if I'll ever come back. Um, any of you, any of you out there um, have pro- many of you out there have been absent in the past. So I'll ask you this question: If the allergy of the body was my only problem, then all I'd have to do is abstain, and I'd be done. I don't even know if we'd need to get together on this line every day. Um, to talk about the steps, if all if our problem was only that we have a, an allergy of the body, so many of you have had the experiences that I have had, where I get abstinent and I think I'm okay because I'm not eating my binge foods because they told me not to eat my binge foods and I'm not eating them, but then I pick up again. So that means that my problem is not only in my body, it's also in my mind, and the truth is is that that's a much bigger problem. And the big book in chapter one which we're reading now, it's titled Bill's Story. And in that book, it details the progression of Bill's drinking and its effect on him and those around him. So after reading this and reflecting on it, I was instructed by my sponsor to sit down and write about the progression of my disease. When did my compulsive eating start? What were my relationships like with others as it progressed and so on? And let me tell you that it was not a pretty picture. And, And sitting down and writing it, put it in front of me as opposed to having all these vague memories of being in the food, actually sitting down and systematically writing that history was very, uh, very telling. Something, this life of mine and the disease was something like a cross between a cyclone roller coaster and a haunted house. It was not a pretty scene. Uh, I'll describe for you what life was like in those days. I definitely could not control the amounts of food I ate. I tried regular diets, you know, what they call sensible three meals a day type diets. I tried abstaining from carbs. I tried eating only in the evening, starving all day, eating only in the evening. I tried dieting all week and then eating whatever I wanted on the weekend. I tried acupuncture. I tried homeopathic remedies. I tried eating only organic foods, you know, eating only health foods. I tried food combining diets. I tried high protein diets. I I spent a lot of money and a lot of time um, in psychotherapy and hypnosis, thinking like if I understood myself, maybe that would help, and so on and so on and so on. Um, I planned, I used to plan my day around when I could eat, and my my best times, uh, especially when the children were little and my husband would go out of town, I'd put them to bed real early so I could just eat all night, you know, read and eat in, in comfort without anybody interfering with my eating. I would definitely be annoyed if I couldn't go out to get my fix, if I felt like I needed something and I couldn't get there for some reason, then I'd be upset at the people preventing me from getting there. I hid things in my car. I had things in my room, a stash in my room. I remember once almost hitting at a car as I was trying to maneuver a bag of goodies in my lap. And I also remember another time my car swerving because I was trying to eat something in my car with a fork. I definitely did not see myself as the cause of my problem. I blamed my eating on my bad genes, my family, my life, and, uh, of course, everything and anybody else. Compulsive overeating affected every aspect of my life. Socially, um, I certainly did not like to go out. I didn't like the way I looked in clothes because I looked terrible in clothes. I was ashamed of the way I looked. I was definitely putting my body at risk by being morbidly obese. My top weight of almost 260 pounds was way too much for my frame, and uh, and I already had pre-existing health conditions, which were made much worse by that. Um, I mismanaged household funds, obviously, because 
there wasn't enough money in the budget for to feed two people, to, like you know, double the amount of people, and I was eating for two. I overspent on food. I had clothing in all sizes, mind you, mostly in the big size. I didn't have any clothing in small sizes. I had to have endless amounts of domestic help because I simply couldn't manage the day-to-day tasks, the things that most people take for granted and are able to do on their own. I could not do. It was really hard. You know, schlepping around 260 pounds in addition to all the other things my body was suffering, you know, other medical conditions I was suffering from. When I was younger and in school, I basically underachieved in every subject. I had many opportunities, and I threw them all threw them all away. At every turn, I, I couldn't seem to make use of all that was available to me. I acted against my deepest values, both at home and, at, and socially. I lied about what I ate. I ate food that wasn't mine or wasn't meant for me. I treated God like a gumball machine. Here's my quarter, and now give me what I want. So I certainly uh, spiritually was lacking there. I had low self-esteem. I felt very bad about myself, and I was angry all the time. I couldn't seem to accomplish any of my life's goals, and my relationship with everyone in my family was affected, and I was seen by others as being extremely demanding and difficult. So what does the big book have to say about people like me? On page 22, if you have your big book handy, it reads there, why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it that he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? So why indeed do I behave like this? Why do I keep going back to the foods and eating behaviors that sabotage me and set me off? Why? Why can't I just decide to be abstinent and stay abstinent? The AA 12 and 12 sums it up beautifully, also on page 22. And there it says, our sponsors declared that we were the victims of a mental obsession so subtly powerful that no amount of human willpower could break it. There was, they said, no such thing as the personal conquest of this compulsion by the unaided will. So that's my problem. I have a mental obsession. And this obsession is what sends me back to the food over and over again. But not only do I have this obsession, but I'm powerless over it. My experience has shown me over and over again that I'm unable to resist all the excuses to go back to overeating. I'm unable to. Um, Sometime after I recovered, someone showed me an interesting exercise that she does with her sponsees, which I've since used, you know, with some of my fellows who can't seem to understand what this idea of mental obsession is. And this is what she told me. She said, you know, make a list of all the truths you know about your disease, all the negative consequences. So I I did that, and I just explained to you some of them. My body hurts, I have low self-esteem, poor relationships, failing in life, clothes don't fit, bitter all the time, doctors are constantly warning me, like a long, 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 long list of all the consequences of my disease, which are all true. I, I admit today that they were all true, all those ways I was suffering. And then she'd have me go to the other side of the page and simply jot down all the excuses I give myself Um, for picking up that first bite. So when you're abstinent, and just before you're about to pick up something that you know you shouldn't, what what thoughts fly through your mind? So for example, some of them could be, oh, this is not going to hurt me, or um, this doesn't really count, this this 
particular binge food or I'll be okay on Monday or I'll get back on track tomorrow or my life is too hard, it's impossible for me to be absent. All those excuses I give myself to go back to eating. And that she would say to me, and this is what I tell others, if everything you tell me about the effects of your disease are true, all those consequences you suffer, how is it that one of those thoughts, which you know is a lie, it's never been true, it's a lie, is able to just smash all the truths that you know about your disease? And she says, that is insanity. And that's what it means to be powerless. That's what it means to be powerless. That one little lie excuse could, could destroy um, you know, the entire wall of, of truth that I know about my disease. So I need to admit that I'm powerless over my compulsive eating. So that means I'm powerless over my binge foods and, and any you know, compulsive eating behaviors. It also means that nothing that I have could give me power, not self-knowledge, not the desire for things to be different, not physical pain, not desperation, not even watching myself struggle and fail at, at everything that's important to me. There was no person, situation, emotional state, or anything out there that would give me the power. In the words of the big book on page 24, I am beyond human aid. And this is the point where we admit, or at least where I admitted that I was doomed. This is step one, right? This is my problem. The realization that I'm condemned to a slow death, and I really believed, that the food would kill me. And, but it's not the allergy of the body that condemns me to die. It's the mental obsession. So why is it so important for us to come to this place of admission? Why do I have to be 100% sure that I'm powerless? Why can't I just say, I think I've got a problem with food, and let's move on to the solution. Why the complete admission of powerlessness? Um, the 12 and 12 um, ask this very same question. Why is this the step that only... Why is this the only stuff that we need to do with 100% perfection? Because if I'm only 99.9, excuse me, if I'm only 99.9% convinced that I'm powerless, then that 0.1% is going to feed on my insane thinking and one day rear its ugly head. You know, as some thought like, oh, I think I'll be okay. This is not a real binge food. Or I'll start again on Monday. You know, most of us are only willing to admit complete defeat when we're at rock bottom, when we're out of option. And that was my experience. My experience was that I was not going to be willing to save my life unless I think I'm going to die otherwise, which is why 10 years before I came into Overeaters Anonymous, where I tried the meetings, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready because I hadn't suffered enough, and I was not ready to admit defeat. So I came to the conclusion of powerlessness. I put down the food, and then I'm done? Nope, there's more, because now I'm in a very vulnerable state. Because although I've taken care of the allergy of the body, it's going to take something else to lift the obsession. And that's what we know is a step. I need to recover from the state of mind. From this state of mind, I need to recover before the mental obsession catches up with me. So I could not sit around or dilly-dally. I came to the conclusion of powerlessness, and I moved straight on, full speed ahead, to step two and, and beyond. And I want to tell you something, that I had a real gift when I came into the program. When I, when I came in 10 years ago, I came in at that time, I was definitely at my rock bottom. In the words of the 12 and 12, I was as willing as only the dying could be. At that point, I was ready to stop fighting, and I was ready to recover. I did everything that my sponsor suggested. But what if you're not there yet? What if you're not quite ready to admit powerlessness? What if you're not quite willing to admit defeat or that you're really one of us? So then... I don't know what would help you, except that you might need help from our friends. 
I don't know if you have the same friends, Betty Crocker, Sara Lee. You know, I know I'm dating myself. There must be new players and new foods on the block that I don't know about. But I'm sure you could you get my drift and you and you could think of, of some more. Um, more, you know, you might have some more eating to do until you're finally convinced that you're at a place where you have no other choice but to admit that you're powerlessness and to move forward with the steps. At the point where I admitted powerlessness, I didn't feel empowered or exhilarated or confident when I took the step. I, I felt crushed and defeated and spent when I admitted powerlessness. And that's why at that point I simply saturated my life with program. I put everything aside for a couple of months and I did my step work. Now those of you on the line who've done this work, traveled this journey, know what I'm talking about. But for those of you out there who have yet to sincerely make this admission, if only I could give it to you and do it for you, but I can't because admission of powerlessness is an inside job and it's got to be inside you. And I hope for all of you that you'll come to this conclusion as well, completely and speedily. And I thank you for the opportunity to share. And I pass. Thank you, Esther C. I now welcome Penny E. to the line. I'm muted now. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Let me turn my timer on. And let's see here. Okay. So here we go. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. My name is Penny. Penny E., a recovered compulsive overreader from South Jersey, not to be confused with Penny C. from Boston. We have different accents, although we both uh, like to share our two cents. That's a laugh, okay. Uh, I, like to, I like to joke a lot, but this is serious stuff. Um, I first want to say that I am just so very nervous on a scale of 1 to 10. I'm like 11 million nervous. And uh, because I'm in this program a long time, I know that that has to do with my character defects of perfectionism and fear and low self-esteem. And I want to sound like this one. I want to sound like that one. We have such intelligent, articulate people on this line. But uh, God kind of told me that I can do Penny E from South Jersey beautifully. I can do her perfectly. So that's a good thing. So here I go. Um, I want to start with my qualifications, my resume, so to speak, of what gives me the uh, what this uh, experience to be able to talk here today on powerlessness and unmanageability. I'm 28 years recovered 28 years through the grace of God, no slipping, no sliding. In my other program, they often say in a row, 28 years in a row, a major feat. I say it loud. I say it proud. I write it in skywriting because it has nothing to do with me. We have to give the credit where credit is due, and that is my higher power, you know, and thank you to Bill and Roseanne and all those people, but through the grace of God and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the AA 12 and 12 of Alcoholics Anonymous, today it's a beautiful day. I don't have to eat today. I don't have to eat. No problem with that. Um, I also want to say that uh, I'm not going to go through a lot of my history, my, my, uh, the things that I did, but let it be said that I did plenty of things. I had my jaws wired shut. I went to diet camp. I spoke at a weight loss uh, uh, specialty program. Uh, I was on diet pills. Uh, I tried epicapic syrup. I mean, I could go on and on and on. That's another whole story. 
None of it treated the mind. None of it treated the mind. My life was unmanageable. My life was unmanageable. I kept trying something else, something else. Let me, let me uh, dress in black. Let me dress in black, you know, with stripes going up and down. And then maybe, like, I'll look thinner and everything else. Nothing treated the mind. So here we are at the first step. It is the most important step. It's the most important step. And Bill says, uh, you know, we have this big book and we have this step book. It's our inheritance. If we were going to meet Bill W. for coffee today at Starbucks, you know, before he would pass out at the price of a cup of coffee, um, we'd ask him, you know, tell me. Tell me about step one. And what he says on page 68 in the 12 and 12 is only step one where we made 100% admission we were powerless over alcohol. I'm reading it as it says. It says over alcohol, but of course we changed the word to food. can be practiced with absolute perfection. Perfection. Which means that I can put down the food today with perfection, correctly. Um, I'm not going to start saying what we used to say in program because I don't have all that much time. But anyway, uh, so the big book tells us that unless we have a spiritual experience sufficient to bring about recovery, we're going to be doomed, absolutely doomed, to the vicious cycle of our disease. Picking up, stopping. Picking up, stopping. Hell. Absolute hell. For those of us who have been there and who are currently suffering, hell. Each time we stop, here, here, here's the thing, each time we stop, we think erroneously, that's a good word, erroneously, we, each time we stop, we think erroneously that we have achieved the spiritual relationship to food necessary to recover. Wrong. Ding, 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 ding. It's wrong. Stopping has nothing to do with surrendering to powerlessness and unmanageability. Stopping is easy. It's, that's not the problem. The problem is staying stopped. And I've heard people say that they can't stop, but I heard a, a, um, an example. Somebody said to me, if I took a gun, a gun, and put it to your head, and said, Penny, if you take that, well, here in the Philadelphia area, tasty cake, maybe it's Twinkies, who knows what it is. If you pick up that piece of blankety-blank, I'm going to shoot you in the head, dead. I don't know about you, but I would be able to stop. I would be able to stop. I wouldn't pick up that food, you know. But as soon as, it, and if he held the gun or she or whatever held the gun to my head for a month, I'd be able to stop for a month. But as soon as the gun went down, I'd re return to compulsive overeating. Uh, the problem is not being able to stop. The spiritual expense... Uh, I have some notes here, so I get a little confused, so just bear with me. The spiritual experience necessary for step one is much more than a food plan, much more. It involves a total transformation. It, it involves all, okay, calm down, Penny, breathe. It involves a total transformation, a total change in thought, action, reaction, behaviors to food. These are spiritual in that only God can change us. The spiritual experience sufficient to bring about recovery 
has to be in step one, and that's just not getting a food plan. We have to have a transformation in our head. This treats the mind. This treats the mind. So in my 28 years of being recovered and maintaining about 105 weight loss, I've seen literally, literally hundreds of compulsive readers with food plans, working through the steps, and people who have recovered working the spiritual program return to active disease. Why is that? Why is that? Well, we know from studying the uh, doctor's opinion that complete abstinence will keep the allergy at bay. And this is what we eat. And living the steps and the traditions as a way of life will treat the obsession of the mind. So why do people still return to the food? For me, it was a spiritual awakening that had not occurred. I did not have the spiritual awakening sufficient to bring about recovery. It had not occurred. I had only had a food plan and was dieting. I was stopping. A food plan is stopping, just stopping. There's way more. I have to have the obsession of the mind um, eliminated through working the steps, complete surrender to step one, not two, three, four, five, six, seven. I mean, people say I, I picked up because I didn't complete step four or I didn't complete step nine or I didn't do my... Well, that's possible, very probable. But even before that, I have to have a spiritual experience with step one. I had two major relapses and I learned a lot during those complete those times. I needed a complete transformation of the thoughts. So this transformation, um, let me see, I'm losing my place. Uh, so in addition to my food plan, which is non-negotiable, it's, not the, non, it's been non-negotiable for all these years, 28 years, here are the, some of the practical experiences that I learned, that I learned that helped me to understand powerlessness and unmanageability. I'm really excited about this topic and I was really excited to know that I was talking about it because I think this is something that uh, we need to hear. We need to hear. I needed to hear it. So here are some of the practical things that I learned and put me in danger of picking up. And I'm not really sure how this works because uh, I know the allergy, if I put sugar, flour, other things in my mouth, I know some people eat that, but if I put things in my la mouth that I'm allergic to, I'm going to pick up. But somehow these behaviors and thoughts and reactions also cause me to pick up. So here we go. Here we go. I'm looking at the clock here. First thing, um, finding exceptions to the big book. If I'm reading the big book and I'm saying to myself or to you, but I am a food addict. I'm a compulsive overeater. I can't relate to that. Ding, 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 ding. I have to have a spiritual experience with the big book. I have to identify 100%, 100%. And even if I don't, even if I don't, act as if I do. Stop questioning it. Stop questioning it. Um, stop saying that what I'm doing is working. You know, I was, I was a 30-day wonder in Overeaters Anonymous. I got abstinent. I was leading retreats. I was speaking all over the place. And I went into relapse. And I ended up into the hospital for the first time for food addiction. And when I got there, they told me I was going to eat a fourth meal, what they called a metabolic. And I said, uh-uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> you don't know who I am. I do not eat a, a fourth meal. You know, what I have been doing is working. 
ding, 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 I, I, I. You know, as soon as I say I, 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 I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I had to surrender to powerlessness and give my food over to the hospital. That was the spiritual experiencing for, for me. I have to be very careful of using expressions like I'm back on track, like ding, 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 ding. I have good abstinence. I don't know what the heck good abstinence is. I mean, I don't know about you, but I either am, I am or I ain't. I is or I ain't. I is or I ain't. There's no, you know, there's no uh, whatever. You know what I'm saying. Imperfect abstinence. That's another one. Imperfect, imperfect abstinence is so totally different from surrendering the spiritual experience necessary in step one, admitting we were powerless and unmanageable and our lives had become unmanageable. It's, that's all about me. I decided that it's imperfect and it's okay. Skipping meals. I skip meals. I couldn't, I didn't have enough time. I wasn't hungry. I don't eliminate anything from my meals. Anytime I really start with the word I, it's a ding, 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 ding. The red flags go off because that means that I have not surrendered. It would look more like my sponsor and I decided that because I'm going for this medical test, uh, I'm not going to have this meal. You know, I don't, I really don't say I often because I've surrendered. I have an understanding of this first step. Uh, I don't eat anything that's not planned. If it's My food plan is my prescription. It's my prescription. And I don't change it. That's the same way if the doctor told me to take two pills at 4 o'clock. I don't say, I, you know, I think I want one pill. You know, taking back control is the opposite of surrendering to a power greater than myself. I don't change anything. This is me. This is how I work my program. You can take what you want. You can leave the rest. I'm sharing with you my practical experience. Um, I don't change anything. If I planned an apple and all of a sudden somebody gives me a beautiful pear, I don't change it. Ding, 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 ding. You know, that is taking back control. If I want to change it, it would look like, a spiritual experience would look like me calling my sponsor surrendering, surrendering. You know, the apple I have, I dropped on the floor. It is brown. It's horrible. Somebody just gave me this new pair. What do you think? Can I, can I have that? Oh, she usually always says yes because I have relinquished my power. I have accepted the fact in a spiritual way that I am powerless over food. That's the trick. That's the, that's the thing. Uh, also, I needed to be very careful of uh, sugar and flour. This is not sugar and flour anonymous. This is overeaters anonymous. And if I think that I'm abstinent by eat, not eating sugar and flour, I'm bound, doomed to relapse, doomed. I weigh and measure all my food just because that's what they told me to do. That's what my, I was in a hospital. They told me to do that even after 28 years. I don't change that. I just surrender to it because I'm as powerless today as I was yesterday. I see that I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to go quickly through this. Um, uh, and steps two doesn't mean restored to sanity. does not mean that I, it restores me to power, power over the food. It means that I have surrendered to the fact that I have no power and that my life is unmanageable. 
when my life is unmanageable, not only did I not go to weddings and parties and didn't bathe and everything, but I tried one thing after another to lose the weight, to stop eating. I check ingredients all the time because hidden ingredients can cause a relapse for me. Also, a spiritual experience. Times I eat, I went into relapse. By pushing up the... I decided, I decided that I wanted to eat my lunch, my dinner at 3 o'clock because I was going past the restaurant where I wanted to eat. Ding, 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 ding. I made a decision on my food. Here's my timer. Okay, I just have a couple more things and I will finish up. Um, uh, You know, that is not surrender. Uh, Also, the seriousness of our disease, the seriousness of our disease. My disease, my recovery must come first. Uh, There's people in my area who say, I I might mess this up, but I have to uh, put life into my recovery, not recovery into my life. My recovery has to come first. And that is a spiritual experience for me. That is part of the spiritual experience I needed necessary to recover. And I'm just going to editorialize here, and then I will be finished. Um, This is about seriousness of taking the program. I personally believe that if I were going to a doctor to hear about my cancer and how to treat my cancer or going to church and listening to the the sermon for the day, I would not bring knitting needles. I would not be knitting. You know, I just think this is a way too serious of a of a program to uh to be doing that. And also picking up cell phone messages. I just had to editorialize that folks. I'm so sorry. For those of you who who suggested I didn't say that. Anyway, in conclusion, um, if you are in this vicious cycle, just be open, in the vicious cycle of stopping and picking up and stopping and picking up, just pray for the openness and the willingness to have an understanding of unmanageability, what you need to abstain from mentally, not physically. This, the uh, spiritual aspect of the disease is mental. And, you know, Dr. Silkworth says in the end of, of, uh, of his uh, letter to us, perhaps, I'm going to change the words a little bit. Well, he says, perhaps, if he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. So just know I love you and um, have a beautiful God-filled day, everybody. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Penny E. And now I welcome Deb W. to the line. Good morning, Leah. This is Deb W. recovered from Oklahoma, and good morning, everyone. Um, I I decided to approach this um, study of the step one uh, from the uh, perspective of, you know, I didn't, that the powerlessness actually started before the compulsive eating started. The inability to um, fit in, inability to feel a part of, um, maybe that's the MO uh, of a lot of us, uh, dysfunctional family lives. My mom was an angry person and my dad was an alcoholic. And so from this point, I'm going to talk a little bit about myself and I hope you get the idea of the powerlessness that led me to the rooms. Um, And I don't feel as confident (laughs) 
and I probably should have never felt as confident today, so I wish that you just pray with me as I, I talk about it. I'm going to start with the, the quote from the big book, Each Individual in the Personal Stories Describes His Own Language and from is uh, and His Own Point of View, the way he established his relationship with God. We hope that no one will consider these self-revealing accounts in bad taste. Our hope is that Many alcoholic men and women desperately in need will see these pages, and we believe that it is only by fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that they will be persuaded to say, yes, I am one of them. I must have this thing. And so looking back, I was a skinny youth, and I actually was skinny all through my teens. I lived with brothers who were tall and thin, and even though... I wasn't very big I, because I was short. I, I felt fat, even at that time. Around 19 years old, I started experimenting with dieting. I used different methods. I remember the first one was the Candy Age, which was almost candy, uh, but it was a diet a suppressant kind of candy. Um, of course, uh, after eating a box or two, it, they stopped being a, effective. <laughs> and um, so, you know, maybe I lost a pound or two with that. Um, I fluctuated from sizes after I started getting to be uh, older than a, a, you know, being an older youth, maybe a teen. I fluctuated from sizes five through eight, uh, all during my early 20s. And, you know, my thought that I needed to lose weight was probably more about my body changing and developing, and those changes felt uncomfortable. I cried when I started a period, and I was embarrassed when I had to wear a bra. You know, um, the way the introduction to the bra was, it was like something was wrong with my body because my breasts grew and they needed to be strapped up. You know, I set in my mind a picture of what was acceptable uh, body weight, and I spent the rest of my life wrestling to maintain that weight instead of allowing my body to gain a pound or two and then lose it without tampering with it. I wasn't really overweight. The issue was in my head. Weight perplexed me, and it, it, it still does. The weight never stood still, it seemed. Today I understand better that I won't always weigh the same. If I eat higher fat one day, I might gain. If I don't the next 24 hours, more than likely I'll lose the pound or two I gained. My weight fluctuated even five pounds, may fluctuate even five pounds. I do, being a recovered compulsive eater, have to pay attention to my weight, but I can't you know, weigh every day. Whenever I get to feeling heavier, I have to do an accountable act of weighing, otherwise I can't afford to obsess over it. Gaining should, I, I came up, got, uh, grew up with the concept that gaining, I should weight, I should feel bad, and losing it, I should feel good. And it attached itself, and when I got into the power struggle with it, I became obsessed. I always had a fractured image of myself, and slow to catch up with the reality. When I am fat, I am in denial. And I uh, think I don't weigh that much. And then when I'm thin, I can't see me as anything but the fat person and can't leave uh, her behind in my head. 
the scale and the size of clothes are the things that stabilize and confirm for me what is so. The physical image and acceptance of myself was slow to develop and confusing. As a little girl, we played with white dolls who had blonde hair. Black dolls with kinky hair weren't sold until later. And when they were, I really couldn't identify with them, and I didn't feel connected. The black dolls either had long, straight hair, or if it was short, it was tight with kinky curls. But I really remember seeing ads advertising a bad hair day having kinky hair sticking all up. Later, for blacks, that was called an afro. We didn't have role models for dark skin. Only light-skinned black women with long, straight hair were in the movies. We identified them as beauty because the black race was still trying to develop an image of beauty that includes the wide-nosed, dark-skinned woman with short hair. In my early 20s, I probably maintained a weight somewhere around 130 and 135 pounds, and I only tried half-heartedly to lose a nagging 10 to 15 pounds. At 20, I had a love child and still remained the same weight in the same weight bracket. I was raped in June after the love child was born in July the year before. Losing the control of my body, even if it was only for a matter of minutes, was traumatic. I didn't think I could keep myself safe. I thought I owned my space, but anytime anyone wanted to take it away, if, if you know, I couldn't defend myself and would be invaded. My eating increased and the weight came on. I had periods of up and down weight, yet I still maintained around 150 pounds. It's funny, after the second child was born, the message was I would work and take care of both of them. I could do it on my own, and I did quite well. I think another shift in weight gain and the struggle to keep the pounds off was during the same time I was in love again and thought I had someone who would love me and accept my children. We dated maybe a year, and he was a new divorcee, and when he realized he wasn't ready to commit to my little ready-made family and saw I was getting too involved, he stopped seeing me. I started going out a lot and met guys who thought I was attractive. There was a real need for some reason to be affirmed, and the only way I knew was outside affirmation. I wasn't really that interested in seeing them any more than once or twice, but, you know, I needed that. Um, We would see each other not around my children, and that would be that. I got pregnant again from one of these men and had a mini breakdown, whatever that means. I remember lying on my aunt's couch knowing I was pregnant but unable to accept it as reality. I was in a trance-like state and didn't want to come out. I recall my two children and their need for a parent and pulled out of it. I had the abortion in Stillwater but had already been approved to transfer to my job to Tulsa and started my first day there not totally recovered. The man who impregnated me, remember, uh, I remember telling him I had had the abortion and he was angry that I didn't give him the chance. The chance to what? He hung out in the clubs that I met him in, a full-time bum with a pretty face. I was ashamed, and I knew God couldn't love me anymore. I pulled away from him, didn't think I had a chance of being forgiven for this. I remember riding the bus to work the first few days I was in the new city. 
Yes, of course, my car was broke down. That was how lucky I was during that period of time. I was so depressed. And it was a cold winter morning, and an old woman came and sat down beside me on the bus, and we never said anything. And But yet before she left, she said, God loves those who are his own. And she got up and left. Um, I believe in angels. Maybe a year later, I met my husband, and he married me, and I was grateful, and I cared a lot for him. But I've said before, the ability to love someone eluded me. When we married, I really started eating a lot. I was in my early 30s. I had a baby. Uh, Didn't think God would have trusted me with another child, but he did. And then I really had a significant weight gain. So many things were happening faster than I could process it. A mother-in-law who lived with us and thought I was trying to take her son away. Uh, Plus, she had Alzheimer's that nobody talked about. His family who thought because I came with two kids, I was a gold digger. I'm still looking for his gold. Intimacy, the biggest culprit to a person who has so much baggage. I was expected to open myself up physically and on a regular basis to the man I married, an angry man who felt like he didn't reach his full potential in life, who his arguments included calling me bitches and whores, and somehow I was supposed to forget that when he wanted to end an argument with sex, but I did until my psyche wouldn't any longer. Results were horrendous body memories and incessant eating. I gained at least 40 pounds in my first years of marriage. So what did I do? What anyone would do? I started dieting. And then I found I couldn't stop eating. I didn't want to. Something was missing. There was an empty hole. And when when I did, uh, what, and my husband, who I thought was supposed to give it to me to fill that hole, didn't. I hung with people who ate a lot. We go to all you can eat bars and laugh and stuff and laugh some more. And my dress sizes continue to go up. I never operated very well overweight. My self esteem was already in the toilet, but weight made me feel even worse. Wasn't interested in clothes, wasn't interested in cleaning myself up, afraid about everything. I tried different diet plans, they didn't work. I tried black mollies, they worked until they stopped working, and I was just a bundle of nerves. I was taking diet pills and shots and still eating. Liquid drink was the only thing that made me realize I wasn't hungry, but I still wanted to eat. And then I heard about OA. I came to lose weight and found so much more. As the weight dropped, I realized I had to go to counseling for the many things from my past. OA could address the weight, but I needed the professional help for the deeper uh, work. Life was wonderful. I was Miss OA, a representative, until life uh, uh, sat again or in, uh, showed me uh, deeper disappointments. And uh, my homeschooled baby boy was arrested, got involved in three timer with a three-timer while he was working at a jail. Who cares to com- admit complete defeat? I believe I had so much success, dodging the bullet, exchanging sugar-free for almost anything I had to give up. Looking back, I took chances and rode on that freedom train until I got kicked off. I relapsed. God had promised me my kids would never go to prison, and here they did anyway. Our admission of 
personal powerlessness finally turn out to be a firm bedrock upon which happy and purposeful lives may be built. In and out of the rooms for at least two years, angry, hurt, embarrassed, wait on that I hope no one would notice. And except for one uh, person, uh, nobody ever really said anything. I don't blame them. When I saw someone in relapse, someone I never would have thought uh, that would happen to, I got scared and I stayed away from him. Until he humbles himself, his sobriety, if any, will be precarious. It was then discovered that when one alcoholic had planted in the mind of another the true nature of his malady, that person could never be the same again. It's true. I knew program. I knew this was the only thing that worked, but I couldn't get myself back into it. Misery did it. I heard the term, the gift of desperation. I hated that. Real angry at the first few people on vision that told me, you aren't ready. Because after all, I called from the depths of misery. What were they talking about? I was miserable, but I was trying to explain what I used to do that got me out of the food, what used to work. They didn't want to hear it. I was so angry, but I was desperate and remembered that. When I first came to program, the big book worked. I got out of the food. You know, we if we have learned and felt and seen means anything at all, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are the children of a living creator with whom we may form a relationship on simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. And then, you know, I dropped down to the part in the big book that says, but the actual and potential alcoholic, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. This is a point we wish to emphasize and reemphasize, to smash home on, upon our alcoholic readers as it has been revealed to us out of fear, bitter experience. Relapse scared me, and what was really was scary was just how bad I had gotten. Uh, maybe I hadn't been eating like that in so long, I had forgotten how bad it was. But no, that's not true, because the sugar-free uh, that I thought I could trade out with uh, real sugar stopped working. So even before the total relapse, I was losing a real clean abstinence. Um, I began to walk into relapse much earlier than I admitted. The sweet fruit, even today, I can't play or have a lot of sweet fruit, fresh fruit. Why not? Because it's the sugar content that starts me, my cravings and kicks, kicks off, you know, uh, the uh, uh, obsessive eating. So I can't rely on the mind to tell me the item is okay. I have to rely on my experience. So I'm going to end with this. Um, um, one might say, well, she has such a horrible history with eating. I don't have any of those stories. And um, that would it make me not really a compulsive eater? So do life's hardships cause us to eat? This is one where I've experienced going through many difficulties in program and didn't eat. So, no, I can't say that it's because things were hard growing up and I had a, a poor, uh, you know, image of myself and, and as a woman and a child. 
I had problems when I decided to put the food down. I believe at some point, maybe even a bad habit of using food, uh, Mrs. Debbie's thinking, the propensity to use something to cope with life turned into a bad habit, turning into an addiction. So the big book says most men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. I love to eat. At this point, I was never satisfied, though. The sensation was so elusive that when they admit that they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the truth from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can experience a sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with firm resolution not to drink again. We know this isn't normal. We really don't want to stop. And then it takes over our lives, our health, and destroys our spirit. I remember the first few steps into relapse. I was at an OA convention. And I was at, we were at lunch, and bunches of OA people drink Diet Coke. And I hadn't drank Diet Coke in 17 years, but something told me it was okay. You know, why not? They do it. So I started with the first drink. But one thing I want to uh, uh, remember or remind us, and, and, and I thought about it when I said, then he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. Um, if I had to contemplate, you know, my head was just occupied with the idea of having that drink, that Coke again. My head was occupied with why not, you know, the other members of the, the fellowship do, why couldn't I? But the thing about this program and the relationship with God uh, is that there is a unique unique uh, plan of eating for me. I mean, it, may, it may look like yours, you know, but there possibly are things in it that you don't have. Or there are possibly things in it that I have that you won't have. And so 17 years of experience showed me that I still could not have Diet Coke no matter whether my mind wanted it or whether I wanted it. I got by with the first few bites, but the powerlessness of the allergy, once it sets in, and the mental twist that, you know, comes when I don't have it is what qualifies me to be a compulsive eater, not the weight gain so much, you know. That's the result of compulsive eating. But the fact that my mind, you know, operates different than the normal people, whoever they are. And so because of that, you know, I have to stay in the program, work the steps, and and continue with this uh, plan of living. So thank you, iPad. Thank you very much. That's thank you. And now our final panelist, Penny C., 
Good morning, everybody. Thanks, uh, Layer, and thank you, everybody who's listening. I want to start with a, a favorite quote of a lot of us, and it's page from page 124 in the big book. It says, Cling to the thought that in God's hands the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. And I think this is the reason that all of us who come on these these meetings, whether it be the the daytime meetings or or a special edition, that's 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 our goal. Our goal is um, to to use our dark past, our history, with powerlessness and unmanageability, in order to help somebody else. And then it tells me in working with others that. You know, working with others and helping others becomes the bright spot of my day. And and I, for me, that's very true, and I know it is for many others as well. So how I would like to approach the uh, subject today, powerlessness and unmanageability, is to talk about, you know, what it, what is powerlessness? Uh, what are the elements of it? What does it look like? And go from there. And then talk about unmanageability and how my life showed such such symptoms of unmanageability. So just like uh, Leia started with some definitions, I was taught right from the beginning when I started studying this big book with the sponsor that I was to look up every single word I didn't I couldn't get give a de- dictionary definition for. And so I looked it up, of course, and it said simply powerlessness devoid of strength and resources, devoid of strength and resources. And what was the strength and resources, to put it in a word, spirituality? I was devoid of any kind of spiritual connection. You know, I had this wonderful, strict uh, bringing up, religious uh, bringing up, many, even even my college was was a uh, religious-based college, and yet, I knew all the rules, I followed the rules, and I judged the people who didn't, and I did not have a spiritual connection. So realizing my powerlessness helped me, sounds like a paradox, but I'm powerless, well, that's going to send me looking for the power which brought me to my higher power. Okay, so um, what what are some of the elements of... of um, of powerlessness, and this is in in reading um, the big book and and having studied and and now going through the AA twelve and twelve with the sponsee paragraph by paragraph and commenting and sometimes we spend an hour on one or two paragraphs. These are the elements that I I, I came up with: acceptance, surrender, humility, honesty and gratitude. And just a little aside with gratitude, just something to make us, um, you know, chuckle a little bit. Um, Some of you know that uh, I recovered recently from back surgery. I was three months out doing very well when I slipped on the stair and now I have a broken leg. And sometimes, you know, I can laugh at that. Most of the time, I have to really ask God for help. So, when one of my sponsees called me a couple of days after the accident and asked me how I was doing, and I started, oh, I have this pain, and I caught myself. Negativity negativity cannot run my life. 
it just brings me into that pit of self-pity that I can't climb out from. I, I'm there without a ladder. And so just just to um, pass on something that I, that I really laughed about a lot, and I still do, and so I said to her, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to get negative. What I have to do is get into gratitude. And so that was a slip of the tongue that caused us to, to laugh quite a bit. And it's good to laugh. You know, we're not a glum lot. We are not. Um, and if we are, we better find a way to find some humor in, in our lives. That's, uh, that's just my little uh, editorial comment, I guess. Okay, so what does powerlessness look like? Um, all we have to do is read Bill's story, and there it is. There it is. In fact, one of the things I suggest to the people I speak with, and some, I think I've read it on a meeting at one point, is if I go to Bill's story and I want to identify with it, I take certain paragraph, especially the one I'm going to point out right now, and I rewrite it with my own story in there. I use it as as an example to work on. And so the paragraph is on page five where it says, Least liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. And so I'm just going to read you my paragraph. I read this often um, to remind myself of very how... You know, the, the, the past, you know, we, we don't regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. It's good for me to be reminded of the, my powerlessness. So my, my paragraph goes like this. Binge eating ceased to be a luxury. Eating day and night came to be a necessity. Garbage food, an entire cake eaten sliver by sliver, followed by a half gallon of ice cream, got to be routine. Sometimes, in a period of white-knuckling abstinence, I would be the loving, sane wife and mother I prayed I could be. This cycle repeated itself over and over until I began to require high-calorie foods and volume if I were going to function at all. Nevertheless, I still believed that with enough willpower... I could control my overeating, and there were short periods of abstinence that gave me and my family some level of hope. Um, as I said, I read that. It's in my book, and I read it often just to let myself know where I came from. Um, I've, been, I've been recovered in, in um, abstinent in Overeaters Anonymous. It'll be 30 years on June 10th of this year. I don't take that for granted for one single minute, not at all. And so uh, the the powerlessness um, is a one, it really turns out to be a wonderful step toward my recovery. Uh, I'm going to just read a couple of uh, excerpts from the AA 12 and 12. And as I said, I'm really, really in, Amazing, marveling at these beautiful essays that Bill wrote. And if you aren't aren't familiar with these, and I might even suggest that you find someone else to read it with and comment, uh, these are, these essays in the twelve and twelve are not to be missed. And so, in step one on page twenty one, it says. Who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course, 
Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. And that's where I was, you know, when I first heard about it. You know, what do you mean? What do you mean I'm powerless? Look at all I can do. Look what I... And then when I really realized, my very first meeting, I'm very fortunate that they told me I had a disease and that I had a higher power who could help me. So the other um, paragraph or the other excerpt I wanted to, to share with you is on page 73 of the AA 12 and 12. Every newcomer in AA is told and soon realizes for himself that humble admission of powerlessness over alcohol is the first step toward liberation from its paralyzing grip. Wow, that sounds really, really serious, doesn't it? And it is. It is. Liberation, what sets me free? It's a paradox that if I admit I'm powerless, I'm set free. It, it's it's amazing to think about, but that's how it was in my life. And so I realized that um, the powerlessness is something that I need to, when I'm working with others, I need to to talk about, to stay on till till somebody gets it. Just just earlier this week, I was on another telephone meeting, and someone asked the question. Uh, pose the question, how, how is it that I continue to pick up when I'm in the steps, when I'm doing the steps? How is it? How is it? And so um, it was a question and answer period after the meeting, and I came on and I suggested that maybe this member could call in this morning to the meeting and listen to this discussion of powerlessness and right away she said, oh, I know I'm powerless. That's not the problem. And I hope, I don't know if she's on, but that's where I think so many of our newcomers and even long-timers, they fail to see how very important it is to 100% admit that they cannot control their own food, that they are dependent on a power greater than themselves. And that, you know, without, without abstinence, we can't really um, get or, or work or, or live the steps. And um, another thing I've heard people say in the rooms and even a sponsor of mine, one, a sponsee of mine one time, um, we talked a few times and I realized that she was not ready to, to admit her powerlessness because she kept trying to convince me that she was a high bottom, high bottom compulsive over, you know, I'm really not as bad as other people. And we don't compare. That's just a, we just need to realize our, our, our inability to, uh, our, as the definition that we are devoid of strength and resources unless we have a power greater than ourselves. And so, um, I'm going to leave powerlessness there um, and uh, get on to the, um, well, I can tell you the fame story you, you may have heard of mine before, that my powerlessness when I wrote down what I did with, uh, with and around food was uh, uh, one particular night where I was on the second floor 
and and uh, I knew there was a half gallon of ice cream in the freezer in the basement. It was the middle of February. It was very cold here in New England, and we had no insulation in the basement. But I knew that was down there, and I wanted just to go to sleep and get a good night's sleep and get up early in the morning with, with four little children that I had at the time. But I was so powerless over that... Uh, that that item that that binge food of mine, and you know as as we hear that why do we eat because we this is this is our way of dealing with the build up of human emotions, and I certainly was feeling a lot of that, and it took me maybe four or five trips all the way from the second floor down to the basement, freezing cold with a big soup spoon and digging away at that frozen stuff until it was all gone. And then I felt the relief. I can't eat anymore because it's all gone. That was probably, you know, around 3 o'clock in the morning. That's my story of powerlessness. You know, Bill has his. That's That tells mine in a nutshell. So when we get on to unmanageability, um, that that... It's so well described for us on page 52 in the bedevilments of the, in the big book. Boy, that was a perfect description of what this penny was like. Um, the, I'm going to just read some of it for you. We were having trouble with personal relationships. I couldn't manage my life. You know, I was so, I was so uh, full of the binge food and, uh, and, and just not, not, with no clarity of mind, with no real connection to God. Um, we couldn't control our emotional natures. We were prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. I had several part-time jobs, but I really lacked the confidence to go out there and do what I knew intellectually I could do. You know, I, I've, I've got a good education. I've been told I... You know, do my, I work my career when I was working, that I do good work, but I didn't, I couldn't do it. I, I had to, you know, I was so, so bogged down with, with, with overeating. Uh, my life was so unmanageable. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. My goodness, that's me. And I wanted to tell you another little scenario that shows my unmanageability so well. When I was uh, when I graduated from nursing school, there were probably thirty five, thirty six young women in my in my class, and uh, the first of us who died was only thirty three years old, and she died of, of of a long bout with cancer, and um, she she was married, had three very young children. We all knew her husband Bob because he always visited at the nursing school. And I went to the funeral along with many of other of my classmates, and I watched that man come down the aisle. This brings tears to my eyes. I watched him bring walk down the aisle of a, of a large church, carrying the youngest, and with the other two hand, holding hands beside him. The oldest was, I don't think she was more than four years old. And then, you know, as the casket came down the aisle, I sat there, or stood there, and I looked and I felt like, I, I remember saying, God, 
She's so lucky. She doesn't have to deal with this this veil of tears, this horrible life that I'm living. Was that unmanageability? I I just was was blown away. And just one more thing that showed me my unmanageability, and then I'll I'll, I'll um, uh, wrap up. Um, at one point, I've always just done traditional OA. I know there are other phases of OA. You know, there's 90 day and how program. I really don't know too much about those. I just have always just been in. You know, like I said, traditional way, but I listen to phone meetings with, and I, you know, um, I'm just another compulsive overeater and um, recovered by God's grace. And so at one point, a hundred questions were being uh, uh, passed around in my regular face to face meeting. And some of you may be familiar with these questions. And uh, we looked at, you know, our, our youth, our adolescence, uh, our, you know, young adulthood, our age today. And I remember writing on those, and then we would share. I had a step partner, and we would meet every week, and we would share the answers to our questions. And what I found out there was was amazing, that... Every problem in my life, every lost opportunity, every dream unfulfilled, I attributed to the fact that I was fat and I overate, and that I I didn't know it, you know, when I was going through that time in my life, but that's what caused the unmanageability. So I want to end thanking everybody for listening, and this has been a wonderful exercise for me. Um, <clears throat> just uh, you know, researching in 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 the books, and then you know, delving into my own past and in my own recovery. Um, you know, uh, we're all in this together. We 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 want we want people. We want each other to to have what we have. This beautiful way of life. This this spiritual. Um, um, uh, life, I guess I can solve what I can come up with, and and uh, you know um, we say keep coming back. Yeah, we can keep coming back, but it's not enough just to bring our bodies there. You know, it's we we real we need we need to talk to each other. You know, and 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 work things out and study and practice these steps. We have, as my sister who was in both my. 12-step programs and passed away four years ago, she would say to me, Penny, there's an army of us out there ready to help us. An army of us on a Vision for You member list. We're way over 3,000 names. And every morning there are newcomers and every morning there are sponsors. And we are just the most blessed group that I could ever imagine. And I'm going to pass. Thank you. Thank you very much, Penny C. Thanks to all our panelists this morning, Esther C., Penny E., Deb W., and Penny C. Their contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. Now we're going to transition to question answers. If you have a question for any of our panelists, this is the time to press star 1 to unmute and announce yourself, please. Leah D. Leah D. 
One moment. Anyone else? Rochelle M. Rochelle M. Jamie W. San Diego. Jamie W. Okay, let's start with this trilogy. Leah D., go ahead. Good morning. It's Leah D. from Brooklyn. Can I be heard? Yes. Thank you very much. Words can't express what you've done for me this morning. And my question is, close your eyes and put yourself back to being an 18-year-old. We're now working with young people, and I need a few words of inspiration on how you're going to reach that young person without overwhelming them with all the great things you just told me. Think about being 18 and what's going to make you want to walk in and stay. Thank you. Panelists, who would like to come forward with a response? This is Esther. Esther, go ahead. Are you talking to me, Leah? Yes, please, Esther. Um, I've never worked with someone who's 18, but I have um, worked with someone who's as young as 22 or 23. And uh, it could be that a person... uh, you know, at that age, a person could have gone through a lot or not gone through a lot, but um, it, I found it helpful to paint a picture of what their future would hold for them should they continue on the traje- trajectory. Um, but again, I think I don't think age really matters. I think it depends how much suffering and if people have to feel like that they're at the end, at their bottom. And you could be 45 and not feel like you're at your bottom, and you could be 20 and feel like you've had enough. So I'm not sure that the message is different um, necessarily for someone who's 20 and someone who's 40. I think it has to do more with where they are in the progression of their disease. And I'll pass that. Thank you, Esther. I believe I heard Deb W. as well. This is Deb W. Can you hear me, Leah? Yes, go ahead, please. I I was thinking back also... um, to the frame of mind at 18. Um, and first of all, it, uh, the closer to that age that anyone who might be in program is, I think the better they could reach an 18-year-old. I mean, you know, I believe 18-year-olds are looking that, to relate to someone that they conceive as understanding them. And when, you know, like 60, like me, I don't know if I would be that effective. But if I didn't have that uh, that opportunity, I think listening a lot, knowing at 18, and this is Debbie thinking, is knowing 18, you know, I think the seeds are planted at that age. You know, whether they stay or not, you know, the seed is planted. Um I guess that's all I have to say. Thank you. Um, This is Penny C. I'd like to respond to. Go ahead, Penny. Okay. Um, I was at, um, gosh, I don't know what, what, um, maybe in Boston at the um, World Service Convention, and I sat in front of a quite young woman, um, found out that she was 19, a sophomore in college, and I knew, I, I, I knew because she, Every every moment she had in between uh, speakers or whatever, she was taking notes and she had a test. Anyway, what I wanted to say is, when I was 18, I think I only would have related to, you know, 
people my own age. And what she told me was that um, she started off in young people in OA. There is a website for them. It's part of the OA um, umbrella, you know, the, the dot .org, and it's... Um, um, it's very helpful to people. She lived in upstate New York, and I wish I could say I still had her number. Um, I know I have it, but I wouldn't be able to get it right now. And um, she she told me that they had their own little phone meeting, and she wouldn't give me the number or anything. She just said she wanted young people to call her and then get going on that. So if I were working with someone that age, I certainly would try to help that person, that young person, find this group, Young People in OA. Pass. Thank you very much, Deb W., Penny C., Esther C., for your responses. Thanks, Leah D., for your question. And Rochelle M. Good morning. Rochelle M. in Maryland. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Great. Thank you very much for for this I don't know you call it seminar, perhaps. It, it's been just what I needed to hear. And uh, it's such serendipity that I just happened to call in this morning. Um, my question is, I have, I have a, a sponsee who keeps on relapsing. She's been in OA for a long time. And uh, uh, she's, we've, we've worked on the steps, but she's, uh, I think she still needs to be back at step one. So what would you recommend that, that I would do as a sponsor to somebody who keeps on relapsing but really doesn't seem to have gotten step one even though she's been through it um, with other people. So that's question passed. Penny C., I'll take that. Okay, Penny. Okay. You know, people call me occasionally, sometimes more frequently, and they'll say, I just can't stop eating. And they emphasize you know, the I, I just can't stop eating. And I say, well, if you're a real compulsive overeater, you know, I know that. You're right. You're absolutely right. You cannot stop eating. It's all about needing a power greater than ourselves. Now, that may seem up in the clouds for some people that, you know, um, let's get, let's talk about higher power here. But that's the purpose of the book. Our big book says the purpose of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself that can solve your problems. And so, um, you know, if, if people keep, keep relapsing like that, uh, I, I remind them that we have to keep, keep on that step one because until they, they internalize believe 100% that they are powerless over certain foods, they cannot recover. They, they just It's that simple. They just cannot recover. And, uh, and we have to keep at it and keep at it. And I think some of the things I suggested, look at Bill's story. Write your own story. Write, you know, use, these, use Bill's words and, and translate them into your words and see that power, recall situations like my, you know, uh, ice cream in the basement story that will will prove to me 
that I could not stop. I didn't want to go down into that cold, dark cellar in the middle of the night. I, 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 I was totally pulled. I, I had no power to stop myself. And at that point, without OA, without the 12 steps, I didn't know what to do. So I'll pass with that. Thank you. I will, I'll have an answer also later, please, Penny E. Yes, go ahead, um, Penny E. Thank you, thank you. One thing I have to remember is that I am powerless over anybody else's recovery. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what they say. I didn't cause it. I can't create it. I can't cure it. Something like that, another program says. But um, the other thing, on page 120 in the big book, To the Wives, um, there's a paragraph in here, and I just want to read it, about relapse. And it says, perhaps, it talks about the husband. So I'm going to change the words to, so per, perhaps your friend or your sponsee will make a fair start on a new basis. You know, they put down the food. They put down the alcohol. But just as things are going beautifully, he dismays you by coming home drunk, comes home with crumbs all over his chest, you know. If you are satisfied, he really wants to get over drinking. You need not be alarmed. Though it is infinitely better that he have no relapse at all, as, he, as, as has been true for many of our men, it is by no means a bad thing in some cases. Your husband or your sponsor, your friend, will see at once that he must redouble his spiritual activities if he expects to survive. And so I think uh, for people who are picking up that double rest- doubling the uh, spiritual activities is in step one. You know, where am I missing? Where am I missing the boat? Where am I taking back control and not surrendering, surrendering to a power greater than myself? Thanks, Leah. This is Deb W. Please go ahead, Deb. Um, I'm kind of looking um, a little bit like the last person in a way, and it wasn't until I came to um, uh, vision and got the sponsor that I got that, you know, I. Uh, enjoy hearing the term uh, guide rather than sponsor. Um, when I, before I used to sponsor, <clears throat> I feel like I don't want to sponsor that way again. And that was, you know, if I have someone who is not ready, so to speak, I uh, continue to try to do what with them? All I have to offer to them is the the guide through the big book. That is the utmost and important thing. And if I stop doing that and, and they're not ready to do that, then Debbie starts giving her opinion and Debbie starts trying to support a person. God is in this thing. You know, if something were to happen where I wouldn't feel like I was effective for them, Am I blocking them from being able to uh, be out there and find someone else or hit bottom? So those are just thoughts. I, 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 you know, don't say I drop people that easily, but I do say that I have to continue to watch my own motives in a thing. Thank you. Thank you to all the for all the responses. Thanks, Rochelle M, for your question. Jamie W. Jamie W, star one to unmute. Thank you, Leigh M. 
<clears throat> Jamie W. San Diego, Compulsive Overeater. Thank you so much for all your shares, um, Esther C., Penny E., Deb W., and Penny C. I had a question that I wanted to present to Deb W. first. You mentioned all you can eat, all you can eat, the places that you ha- that you went to with your friends when you're in, uh, you know, not in recovery. In your experience, what did you find was able to determine? the behavior of food items that should be added or taken away uh, to maintain your abstinence um, in that all-you-can-eat situation. Okay. Now, I'm talking about before program. Um, I I, I was unmuting, so I kind of lost the first part of that question. So you're saying if we went to all-we-could-eat places, how did I determine what foods I could have or couldn't have. I think I can you yeah. didn't hear. Let me make it clear. Um, are you able to go to all you can eat places now? I very seldom do that. You know, I I would I can't say I would recommend it. Um, I eat a certain way to where you know I have done it, but for some people that is a you know that it would not be a good thing. So, you know, I do, but I know what I eat, what I'm going to have. So I hate to just kind of say that because I wouldn't want you to think it was automatically okay. All right. Thank you, W. Can I respond to that? Of course, Penny, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, I think the big book tells us that if we are spiritually connected, if we are spiritually in a good place, we can go anywhere in the world. So if I'm in doubt as to whether or not I'm in a good spiritual place, when in doubt, leave it out. So if I'm in questioning as to whether or not I can go, I probably would not go. But the other piece to that is for me. I personally weigh and measure my food everywhere I go. So it doesn't matter if I can have all your eat, all I can eat, you know, chicken or whatever. I pray to God to help me follow my food plan, and if I'm spiritually fit, I put it on the scale and I can eat my desired or you know planned amount of food. So, thank you, Deb. Thank you, Penny E. Thanks, Jamie W. For the question. Who else has a question for our panelists this morning? Star one to unmute. Lisa B. Lisa B. Hold on, Lisa. Anyone else with questions this morning? Sarah W. Sarah W. Thank you. All right, Lisa B., go ahead. Good morning. This is Lisa B., recovered compulsive eater overeater in South Carolina. Thank you for all of you. Um, I loved the talk. I I got so much out of it. My question is for Deb W. Um, I really identified with what you shared about your body image and uh, not really seeing yourself clearly and accurately. And I kind of forgot about that aspect of my disease until I heard you share it. And um, I wanted to ask you how you found... um, you know, healing and and recovery in that area. I know being recovered, you know, we certainly recover body, mind, and spirit when the spirit, once that spiritual maladies overcome. But 
I think that brokenness inside of me, you know, it still can resonate and speak to me. And I was just curious how you found healing in that area. Thank you so much. I passed. <laughs> Thank you. I think a lot of it comes with time. Uh, I did, I think I mentioned that, uh, maybe I didn't, that at one point I started therapy. And I do, in the back of my mind, think that had I not gone to professional therapy, I might have been back into the food. Uh, I think OA addresses uh, a successful program, but we're not therapists. Our sponsors are not, well, some of them are therapists. But anyway, uh, so that was a big deal. Time healed a lot. Um, And I grew. I mean, I grew. And uh, I did a lot of work. I did a lot of hard work. Um, to get better, and that's it. If you want to get my number, I'll talk to you more about it. Thank you, Lisa B. Sarah W. Did you call me, Leah? I did. Thank you. I was unmuting. Good morning. Thank you for your service, Leah, and thank you to the panel for sharing your experience, strength, and hope. Sarah W., grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. Um, the thought came into my mind about our way of life has its advantages for all. And if you're sponsored long enough, you have people that come to you from all venues, uh, some that are very, very low bottom and some that are very high bottom and some that are really perplexed. Where do I fit? And I'm going to leave this to whoever wants to share, but we all have our challenges with people that come in that really, really seem to want the program, that are really desperate that are really trying, they're trying everything that you tell them, but they just can't get it. So, you know, for me, I don't turn people away. I feel like God places those people in my life for a reason. So my question is, how do you deal with somebody that keeps on going back to the food, that really seems to want it, that is trying to do everything you're asking, but just can't seem to get it? And I'd like to start uh, the question with Penny C. and then hear from the rest. Thank you very much. Hi, thank you. Um, wow, that's a that's a great question. It really is. Uh, how do we how do we deal with that? I've never turned anybody down. I've never said, you know, don't call me anymore. You're not ready. I never proclaim anybody not ready. Um, I remain their friend at least, at least. And um, and uh, oh gosh, I lost my train of thought. How could that happen? Um, uh, say the question again briefly, please, Sarah. Well, I was quoting our our way of life has its advantages for all and the idea that, you know, so many people struggle and they seem to really want the program. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. You, you, you lit a light here for me. I was talking about that very question um, many months ago on the after meeting on a vision for you one morning and i had that same that same dilemma and after the meeting another member called me and she suggested to me that what i could do because it can be so so frustrating you know we so want to help these people and they just can't they just don't they just can't seem to get the get in on the program and work it and and they can't seem to get that spiritual connection and she suggested that I take the third step prayer and say it 
as often as I could remember for that person. And instead of, you know, God, I offer myself to thee, God, I offer Mary to thee, whatever the name is. And to say that third step prayer, and you know, it really helped me to keep saying that prayer. And, um, and after a while, um, you know, I was able to at least accept that I could only, I'm, I'm only a human, and God had to do the work, and I would ask God to do it. But, you know, that, that acceptance that I'm not all-powerful is, is a, a really difficult thing sometimes because we, we love these people, and we so want what we have for them. And uh, so, uh, you know, that's all I can offer, Sarah. Thank you. Thank this you. Yes, go ahead, Deb. I wanted, I'm so glad this question came back up again, Sarah, because I wanted to clarify, I don't ever drop a person from calling me. You know, I do, however, um, I may, all, however, say that, you know, I, I don't know that you're ready or, or you, you know, to go back through when we've tried it several times in the food that keep relapsing or not, or keep uh, going back to the food. Um, I, what I offer is what the book, big book offers. I don't sponsor any way other than going through the big book. I don't have a bunch of questions to answer, for them to answer, et cetera. So, yes, most definitely call me. Call me. You know, I'll support you. But as far as taking them through the big book, I, I probably don't continue to push that. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Any other panelists want to respond? This is Esther C. Yes, please, Esther. Go ahead. So, um, Sarah, that line in the big book, our way of life has its advantages for all. I've always, to me, that meant that the principles learned in the program can be applied to not just with regards to our problem with food, but in all areas of our life and for all other people. And I find myself... uh, you know, here and there inserting some of the principles I've picked up in the 12-step rooms to my life outside of the 12-step rooms at work and at home. But regarding someone who is struggling, I think this is similar to the question that was asked earlier, is that is that sometimes my answer is I don't know. Because one thing that a long-time recovered person taught me, and it's it's been useful to me since then, was that I can never go wrong if I talk about my experience. This is where I was, this is what I did, and this is where I am now, and that's the only thing I could share. Now, if someone's got an experience, you know, is in the middle of something that I don't have experience with, which is, let's say, on again, off again, you know, abstinence, um, and, and we've, you know, and I've, we've gone to the big book, and we've tried this, and we've tried that, then sometimes my answer is, I don't know what, how to help you. Um, I'm not a full-service spiritual guide, and I can't expect to be able to help everybody. And and I I wouldn't drop someone in the sense that tell them they can't call me, but that only my only stipulation would be is that when we do speak, it would be about you know twelve step related matters, and it would not be a venue for them to complain, you know, and complain and complain. Like if you if you've got something you want to do, we'll do it together. If you want to do review of the doctor's opinion, we'll do that together. But um, you know, it's not um, you know just for you know just for us to talk and and for me to listen to I can't and this is too hard. I I don't know if that's useful for them. Now there are you know sometimes people just need to get to a worse place. I know it sounds 
awful to say it and, and certainly to hear it, but some people just haven't suffered enough um, and are not quite ready. I have met people uh, who, who are regular uh, listeners of A Vision for You, and they've been sponsored by every other person whose voice I hear on the line. And I say to them, look, I mean, if Bill W. would appear now, he, I don't know if he'd be able to help you either. I, I think that there's something, um, I, don't, I don't see myself as being the answer to some, someone's every problem. I just give what I have, and if, and if somehow I can't be the one to give it to them, maybe there's someone else out there, or maybe there's more digging deep that they have to do. I mean, we, we know, um, those of us who know a little bit about the history, that Ebby went back to drinking. And Bill was around. Why couldn't Bill get Ebby to stop drinking? I mean, it was Bill, after all. He was one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. But it just simply isn't enough. The best sponsor, the smartest sponsor, the most articulate person on the line isn't necessarily what these people need. Sometimes, sometimes it could be a turn of a phrase that they need to hear at a meeting. Sometimes it could be suffering more. I, I, I don't know. You know, for everyone, the thing that turns them around is different. But again, I don't, I, I, I don't think it's a reason to cut someone out of one's life. But I, I, I'm, I'm okay with saying to someone, I don't know how to help you. I, I don't know. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, thank you, Sarah W. for the question. Who else has a question this morning for our panelists? This will be all, our final invitation for questions. Joni M. Joni M. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Melinda. Melinda. Anyone else? Going one. Yes. Hi, Leah. It's Mary Lou in Southern California. Mary Lou. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. So let's start with Joni M. Yes, hi, good morning. This is Joni M., uh, recovered and grateful compulsive overeater from New York. Thank you to everybody on the panel. It was tremendous. Um, I've, bec- I've, I've listened to a lot of people who are recovered talk about living the program and they're living in 10, 11, and 12. And my experience is that when I wake up every morning, I have to relive 1, 2, and 3 because, because I recognized my powerlessness yesterday and because I accepted a higher power and I had abstinence and may have been spiritually fit, doesn't necessarily mean I have that today. It's a new day for me. So I always feel that I have to relive not just 10, 11, and 12, but I have to relive all the steps each day. And that's how I work with my sponsees. Is that something that um, makes sense? Is that I'm, I'm, I'm only six, 17 months in program, and I've had a wonderful experience in it. But um, I'm just wondering, am I being, you know, too, I don't know, uh, pedantic about it and or whether or not that makes sense to um, relive one, two, and three every day. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Joni. Which panel? Is- one, Go ahead. Um, I think, yes, I think we do have to live every single step every single day. I know that we have to live every single step every single day. And in doing 10, 11, and 12, and, and t- we bring up the other steps. You know, we go through all the other steps. For me, uh, you know, time is also something that has made it kind of what I do. 
Um, I do write down my food every day, which for me is a spiritual uh, surrender to my powerlessness. I do call it in every day, which is also another spiritual surrender. It's just what I do. I haven't found the need to change what has worked. Um, but uh, So yes, I, I think it is important to renew that uh, I am powerlessness. And, and, and you know, when I go to a meeting, when I share anywhere, I say I'm Penny, I'm a compulsive overeater, recovered compulsive overeater. That instills the same thing, I am powerless. Um, I just think it's the time it becomes natural. But absolutely, I do renew that every day. Not necessarily the same way in which I would call somebody for a 10-step or do, you know, prayer and meditation or something like that, but it certainly is in my daily routine. Thank you, Penny E. Any other panelists want to respond? Penny C. Penny C, go ahead. Okay. Um, Yeah, what this reminds me, the question reminds me of is... um, uh, you know, I've been to many, many um, retreats um, in in 12-step programs, and um, there was a, a nun, actually, who uh, used to give retreats in my area, and uh, she'd call it, you know, you're here for a spiritual tune-up, she would say. And she would tell us every single time, she would repeat it many times during the weekend, that when she wakes up in the morning, as soon as her eyes open... She would say to her creator, she'd not only say, she would announce to her creator that she was an alcoholic and that she needed, that she was powerless over alcohol, for me food, and that uh, she needed the help of, of, of her creator to turn her will and her life over to God. And so... For just for today, she would say, and that's that's the first three steps for sure. And I wholeheartedly agree with Penny E that yes, you know, we I have need of the twelve steps, all of the twelve steps, every single day. Sometimes, you know, I'm more conscious of one than the other, but um, the whole uh, the whole twelve steps are. My way of life, not just 1, 2, or 3, not just 10, 11, and 12, but, you know, um, 6 and 7, 6, being entirely ready to let go of these character defects that, you know, they come up every day, at least a memory of them. So um, I, I think that's a really good question, and I think, yes, my answer is definitely yes. Thank you. Thanks, Joni M., for the question. Now we'll move on to Melinda. Star one to unmute, please. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. All right, thank you. Um, Melinda Compulsive Overeater in Virginia. And uh, first I have to disclose that I have had trouble with abstinence uh, for about six months now, and um, yet I am still retaining uh, as one sponsee in particular back when I was abstinent. And I seem to be um, really upset, I guess is the right word, about when he calls me 
he is complaining about things. He picks apart meetings. Um, he is constantly feeling like someone is persecuting him. Um, he has lost about 35 pounds, basically, because he lost his appetite after a surgery. Uh, now he is not on his food plan that was given to him by a nutritionist, but he says he is eating when he is hungry and he's eating like twice a day. I I couldn't possibly do something like that, but seems to be working for him. But um, we worked the steps when I was abstinent, um, and I thought that he was working on the program and doing well, and yet when we got to step nine, uh, he would not and still uh, will not uh, apologize to his mother um, about... Melinda, question, please. Oh, okay. So what do I do with this sponsee? Um, It's dragging me down whenever he calls me. Okay. Panelists, who would like to respond to Melinda? This is Deb W. Yes, go ahead, Deb. And then Esther, thanks. Um, I think my question to you would be, um, what do you... Why are you still there and what is, you know, your motives? And maybe that's something you could work with your sponsor through. Um, um, I've had to talk to my sponsor before about uh, a relationship with a sponsor uh, here and there. And and it was always pointed back to me and, uh, you know, um, I, I think that's basically what I said. I, I believe is if I can't offer the big book guide uh, through the steps, then I have to uh, look at myself and, you know, what is my purpose. Thank you. Thanks, Deb. And Esther C., please. Hi. I um, I see two two issues here. The first with regards to your sponsee. So generally when sponsees call me, it's not just to chat or to schmooze. They're in the middle of their step work. That's why I've allocated that time for them, and the expectation is that they're in the middle of something. Now, if they just want to call and and dump, you know, if if you know, occasionally that's okay. But if it's someone who's doing that chronically, I'll say, you know, look, I haven't got much time for that. We could save the the you know the, the just casual talk for another time. But for now, where are you up to? Let's let's proceed. And if they they can't or won't, then just say, call me when you're ready. Like if you're not like if you're up to let's say the tenth step, and that's what we're up to now, and you, you're not quite ready have a discussion so when you are you call me um so that minimizes you know just someone calling and talking your ear off of complaining for 45 minutes but the 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 part of your question that i would say um interested me more was your um your commenting that it bothers you or you're disturbed by it so to me that was a more of a red flag than his his behavior because um, when we are disturbed, then we definitely know that there's some work for us to do, except that you yourself have admitted that you're, I think you said that you were still, that you're in the food or not abstinent. So I don't know of what value uh, a proper 10th step would be to someone who's still in the food. But typically when one is recovered, if someone else's behavior is bothering me, then I know that there's something, something in my thinking that has to change. Um, and then, then once that happens, and I'm in a better position to act in a God-centered way and to handle 
this type of sponsee. So let's before we talk about what his problem is, I think it bears to look at yourself and to see, you know, where do I need to change and to adjust so that I'll be able to, you know, deal with all kinds of sponsees. But that I'll pass. Thank you very much. And our final question comes from Mary Lou. Mary Lou, yes. Hi, Leah, thank you. Hi, this is Mary Lou in Southern California, recovered compulsive eater, and grateful to have been here. Thank you, everyone on the on the line and all the panelists. It's been so deep and beautiful. My question is about um, the part of the big book. How have each one of you lived out uh, creatively the aspect uh, where it talks about? Expanding my spiritual life. I mean, after I recovered, it says, there are many helpful books. Ask your priest, minister, or rabbi, um, what have you done to expand your spiritual life and mature and grow your spiritual and emotional and psychological life? After putting the food down, taking the steps, and living in 10, 11, 12, what do you do to expand your spiritual walk? Thank you. Any panelists want to respond? Obviously, literature that is not conference-approved does not get mentioned. Thank you. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll take I'm, it, Penny C. Penny C., who spoke up before Penny? It was Esther. Esther, yes. Go ahead. I was just going to say what you commented, Leah, and that is that any discussion of what I do beyond the 12-step rule would really be something for one-on-one and not necessarily on the line, but I just to say that, yes. Um, In a general pers- way. Yeah, no, just to say personally that I have looked beyond the 12-step rooms for, to expand my spiritual life. I, I think that that, you know, period, after that anything, any other discussion uh, would be really um outside issue. I, I think a lot of it depends on a person's personality, what they gravitate towards to, the society they live in, and perhaps what they grew up with. Uh, you know, some people return to the religion of their youth, some people not. Um, I, I, I guess that's it. <laughs> That'll pass. Thank you, Esther. Anyone else want to add to that, although that seems to cover that? Penny. Yeah, Penny, go ahead. Yeah. In a general um, way. <laughs> One of the one of the very practical things I think I do is I when I first came to to OA and it was my sister who followed me six months later into the program who told a group of people as we led a, a, a workshop at a at a, a conference um, she said my sister what I what I saw in my sister is she was chasing spirituality and I think I still do that when I hear somebody who I hear has spiritual connection and in a strong spiritual connection, I want to talk to those people. I want to listen to other people who can guide me to a greater spiritual spirituality. Um, I heard on this line one time that as important or maybe even more important than writing our food down every day is to write down our spiritual practices and I have those spiritual practices, and they do include some some uh, literature that you know is is not not OA and not not twelve step, um, but it leads me 
to a greater spirituality. Um, the first books I, you know, if I were going on a desert island and they only, I only could take one book with me, I'm pretty sure it would be the big book. Um, and, and so I get most of my, my reading through the big book on spirituality. But, but, you know, having a connection to other people, other spiritually inclined people, um, is, is a big help to me. And I'll pass. Thank you, and thanks, Mary Lou, and everyone who asked questions this morning. Of course, thanks to our panelists, Esther C., Penny E., Deb W., and Penny C. Let's close now from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.